This is Back to Excitement with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 145. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How you doing, Fooleman? None too shabby. Yourself? I'm, I'm good. Um, I want to preface one thing before we get started. If there's like some background noise on my end, um, it's not my mic for the first time in a million times. Um, so the parts of the northeastern U.S. are undergoing this like cicada movement where like every 17 years... They come up from, I don't know, underground or wherever the fuck cicadas normally live and just fuck about, I guess. You know, I, you can tell I'm, I'm not a biologist. <laughs> they, they just do stuff. But anyways, the point is um, they are very, very loud, like to the point where if you step outside uh, here and you are 10 feet away from someone, you have to kind of raise your voice to chat with them. That's wild. It's wild to me that anything can be on like a 17 year biological cycle. Like, how do they know? Yeah, a bug, no less. Who typically have short lifespans, right? Yeah. Oh, anyway, I'm uh, I'm gonna wrestle with that, and I'm sure there's an answer that I could look up. It's so much more fun to just speculate, but like, ah, oh, I wonder if it's that, and then just you know, no one can prove. Are you right? Are you wrong? No one can say. Yeah, you know, the internet has really ruined the ability to just sort of babble nonsense. And not really have it be challenged because nobody can get to a resource quick enough. Mm. Um, but it has helped me identify random actors in sitcoms I watch with my partner, so that's fun. You know, <laughs> I recognize that woman from that thing. Oh, yeah, well, we're going to IMDb this because I can't wait. That's honestly one of the best things about um, Amazon Prime Video's, you know, video player mm-hmm. compared to like Netflix or, or Hulu or whatever. Um, if you pause the screen, at, they'll have a list of all the actors in the scene. Yes, time. yeah, I've seen that. And uh, it's very useful because pretty much all I do when I watch things is think of other things that I've watched, which these people were also in. And then I'm like, oh, I wonder how much range this actor has, or are they talking in the same voice? Yeah, um, it's very useful for um, animated series as well. I was watching mm-hmm. Invincible. Um, and it, uh, yeah, I didn't know. For, uh, so J.K. Simmons it does one of the voices there, and for a while I didn't know it. Oh like, yeah, this guy sounds so familiar. And then I I, I pause and say, "Oh, it's J.K. Simmons." He has a great voice for that stuff. There's there was mm. like an an animated short for well, frankly, for potheads uh, a few years back called Major Laser that like dovetailed with a band of that name. But he was randomly in it as the governor of some like fictional Caribbean island, and his voice is just so good for someone who is pissed off all the time about everything. Like, he goes zero to 100 in every single conversation he's in, and shouts like, fuck it at the end. It's great. He, he randomly is in, like, these weird commercials, which is weird. I mean, I guess he's not, like, an A-list actor the way, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio is, but, like, he's been nominated for an Oscar. He's won he, an Oscar. He's won yeah, an Oscar, he, right? Yeah, yeah, he got for best Whiplash. Support. Yeah. Anyway. So, it, yeah, it's, it's weird when you see him in, like, a Liberty Insurance commercial. Yeah, I mean, get that dollar, to be clear. I'm just... A little surprised. Maybe he's just like, yeah, I want to be rich as hell. I want to yeah, cash those checks. Yeah, I mean, you get paid, I'm, I'm assuming, six figures just to show up and, like, knock out something very easily for an actor of his caliber. Why not? Yeah, I mean, how many shooting days can there be for, like, a 30, 45 second spot? It can't be, like, a huge amount of time. And when you're of that stature, just go in and do it. Mm. Um, 
You know the Leafs are doing well when we spend four minutes off the top just talking about various random actors that we've seen and stuff instead of just, like, crying. <laughs> you know? This is actually yeah. a sign of mental wellness at present because the Leafs have owned the past two games since our last episode. They they really have. I mean, um, the last time we, we chatted, we were, like, kind of cautiously optimistic, which is about as optimistic as we ever get. Yeah, for us, that's like sunshine and rainbows, frankly. Mm. But, uh, yeah, we did, and we, we were called out for it uh, semi-accurately. So, yeah, uh, Jake, uh, Jake Beliefs on Twitter, who is uh, a friend of the podcast, um, he, he listens to us even though I think we make him roll his eyes fairly frequently. Jake, like, yeah. you know... I'm, he, I'm, sure, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm <laughs> sure he does. He's also one of those guys who could, like, uh, in, in, you know, my best... Uh, who was, was this NHL by Maddie who said this? He could clean and jerk me. <laughs> yeah, he's extremely built, which is intimidating. Yeah. But thankfully, so he yeah we, he he could like break us in half if we if he really wanted to. Yeah, that's why I'm anonymous on this podcast to avoid alienating people on the internet. But yeah, no, uh, Jake's a good guy. But like he, you know, he follows his heart and he feels what he feels, and he like lives in the fan base. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't worry about being a nerd and like trying to keep perspective and shit like that. The way that we obsess over doing, he's like, yeah, man, I cheer for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and I don't fuck around. And I respect that, but I can't do it. Anyway, I was, like, pretty high on the Habs. I think we both were. And we have been for yeah. a while, listeners will know. Right. Like, we've acknowledged kind of this bias towards teams that can control play and maybe lack on the finishing. Yeah. I, th- I think a bias towards 5v5 play, really. Um, and I, I really do feel like this is just like post Carlisle PTSD where we were so bad at that that for the longest time it was like just ingrained in my mind of like that's the holy grail if you can get a team doing that everything else is fixable that's mm-hmm. by far the most important thing and I still believe that to an extent right um, but the Habs in a sense are a team tater made to for us to overrate and it, it appears we've done that it's very possible and you know what just as an aside I remember the Los Angeles Kings not even looking that great record-wise in the regular season, and then dominating in the playoffs. But the signs were all there, you know, dominant possession team, very strong XG team, controlled the puck. Obviously, it's been a few years since they did that. Daryl Sutter hockey is no longer entirely in vogue. But it still stayed with me as a sign of who's going to win the most sustainably. The Habs, I should say are not out of this series. 3-1 yes. is not an insurmountable deficit. And we were talking about this beforehand. There is a lot of slightly premature tap dancing on their grave. I get the instinct. I fear it. Uh, but, yeah, I do... Um, I do find myself thinking, okay, maybe we did overrate the Habs because the Leafs, minus John Tavares, who is a key player for them, uh, an essential player, a linchpin of the lineup... The Leafs have cleanly outplayed, outpossessed, uh, in a lot of ways outworked at times. Uh, the Habs, who are missing Jonathan Duran, but still. Um, it's been impressive to see. Now, in the last two games, there's been a bit of a pattern where the first is pretty closely contested. The Leafs really take the game over in the second, whether on the scoreboard or just enough to get a lead. And then in the third, the Leafs kind of slip into a defensive shell. And, you know, they turtle a little bit, but they also really do a pretty successful job at preventing the Habs from generating that many chances. 
Yeah, at least more so in Game 4 than in yeah, Game 3. In, yeah, in, in, in Game 3, uh, you know, I think for the first eight minutes of the period, just to my memory, mm. you know, it was just a kind of a nothing happens period, and then the Habs started getting more pressure and with a one-goal lead that never feels great, right? Um, and the, the Leafs even called it out in the, in the post-game. They said, you know, we, we stopped playing in the third, and we can't do that. Um, I mean, they did it the next game <laughs> slightly more successfully and with a 3 nothing lead, so it didn't, never felt as bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the the story of this series so far has to be that the Leafs are kind of just straight up taking the Habs lunch money. Yeah, and that's kind of remarkable to see, and we're seeing it kind of up and down the lineup. Right, that's in particular quite remarkable because, you know, at the start of the series, we said the Leafs have the star power lineup um, and, you know, the firepower up front, but the Habs do have genuinely pretty good depth. Now, you know, people like Dom Nishishin with his model, he's rated the Leafs' depth as much better than, the, than other people would, and in fact, better than the Habs' depth. And that's why his model, and we were talking about it with him on Twitter just now, mm-hmm. um, his model, even with Tavares out, viewed the Leafs as very strong favorites after game one. Whereas after game one, we didn't do a pod after that, but I think internally, we, you and I said, you know, the Habs are, pro- are now favorites to win the series. So we had the Leafs at, you know, at most 50%. Right. And... You know, that's partly just a factor of it's a lot easier to win a series when you have to win three games and the other guys have to win four. But still, yeah, I, I was concerned. And we've seen some impressive performances from a lot of quarters that maybe were a little underrated. You know, Pierre Engvall has looked quite good when he's gotten into the lineup. Wayne Simmons uh, has been good. Alexander Kerfoot has had maybe his best sequence of games that I can remember in a Leaf uniform. At least yeah. his most memorable. No, I, I, he's, he's been very, very good, uh, Kerfoot. With Simmons, I mean, look, I hate to, I hate to use this phrase because I despise this phrase. Mm. And it's so overwrought to the point that it's no longer really meaningful. But Wayne Simmons seems to live rent-free in the Habs players' heads. Like, they, they, they just seem really preoccupied with Wayne Simmons. Yeah, you know, he's got things to say to them, thoughts to share, and he expresses them loudly at every opportunity, and it seems to make them upset. Now, it's yeah, always it's, easier to get in the other guy's head when they're losing, you're winning. Yeah. But still. And it's also, you know, when you're kind of trolling and being a shithead, it, that's <laughs> acceptable when you're, when you're winning. And when you're losing, you know, we have no tolerance for that. It's like, get back in the game, you know? Yeah. So, so there's, like, you know, a huge amount of winner's bias in everything we're saying here. Yeah, but and also, like, the difference between 3-1 and 2-2 is... You know, the Leafs earned it, to be clear. The Leafs deserve to be ahead in the series. I'm just saying it doesn't take that many bounces to change the whole tone of this podcast. But, yeah, whatever. They're up 3-1. Yeah. So, I mean, as you can, as you would expect, the Leafs are, you know, 3-1. You don't need a mathematician to tell you that that's a very dominant position. Mm-hmm. Even if you think it's a 50-50 shot for the Leafs to win each game. And, to be clear, you shouldn't think that. But even if you did, you know, there's a 7-8 chance that the Leafs win. Mm-hmm. Right, and I mean that's not a seven and eight chance that the Leafs, you know, make it clean sailing and it's comfortable and we can all laugh and enjoy sixty minutes of us kicking the shit out of the Habs and you know laughing at them during the game because you know some of those seven out of eight opportunities come with us winning a nail biter in Game Seven. But you know, at this point there is overwhelming belief and justified belief that the Leafs are going to go to round two. Right. Nothing's and, guaranteed till it happens, but 
you know, after four games short of a sweep, this is the best position you can be in. You're, the Leafs are up 3-1, and they deserve to be. Right, uh, on both counts. And so a couple of things have gone into that. Maybe the most staggering thing, the most surprising thing, has been that Austin Matthews hasn't really torn up the score sheet. Like, if you expected, you know, you heard the Leafs had dominated the Habs, how would you expect that to come about? You probably would say, well, I wonder if Matthews went off the way that he's prone to doing. Yeah, you're like, Matthews has, you know, three goals in four games. Yeah, something something like that. that. He's played well um, against the Deneau line, primarily. Uh, Lots of matchups with Philip Deneau. But he hasn't put the puck in the net at his usual esteemed rate. And it hasn't really mattered. It's been enough that, you know, he's owned possession and he's playing well. And so I'm not really worried about it. But he hasn't had to blow the doors off. Instead, what we've seen is William Nylander taking the play to the opposition and flashing some real offensive skill, even though, you know, it hasn't been been perfect. But he's come up in a huge way. He's put the puck in the net. He's played well with Elar Skalcheniak, who's had a great redemption game last night. And so the result has been that even without John Tavares, the Leafs' second line, which is basically Nylander and friends, has been effective, has been scoring. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Nylander's on-ice stats are actually among the worst on the team this playoff series. Mm. But there's a couple things that go into that. Number one, like Nylander is playing with, I think, by far the worst line mates relative to their position on the depth chart of any player on the Leafs. Yeah. Right? Like we're, we're, What we're tasking him with right now is, okay, make a second line out of mostly depth players and a reclamation project. Yeah, it's a and, lot to ask. Yeah, and I mean, you know, he's not going up against Evgeny Malkin here, mm-hmm. but he's he's doing what he needs to do against against the Habs. And it's also one of the situations where, you know, he's the forward. We, we credit more of the offensive gain that, that his line is experiencing to him as opposed to some of the poor defensive results, which are, you know, kind of a bit of bad goaltending, bit of just wrong place, wrong time, things like that. Mm-hmm. Right? To, to the eye, Nylander has been... Brilliant, and I mean, I don't think that's that's really arguable. Uh, you know, I, as stats focused as I am, I, I think it would be insane to to look at the stats alone and say, "Oh, Nylander actually hasn't been that impressive." You know, at the end of the day, he's the guy putting the puck in the net. It's the single most important thing to do, especially in playoff hockey. Right, and especially in a sample this small, where there's potentially a lot of noise in any kind of Corsi or expected goal sample, and there are in goals too, but. That's where you live or die. So, yeah, it's been pretty encouraging. Really, that the Leafs have looked like the deeper lineup as well as the better lineup because we expected them to be better going into the series. I don't know if we expected them to be deeper. Uh, I didn't think that their depth was awful by any means, but we had questions about the third line for sure. And Riley Nash has kind of flitted in and out of the lineup. It's a lot to ask to come in to a team you've never played before and join them in the playoffs as potentially a third-line center. But, yeah, we've seen pretty impressive play really up and down the lineup. Jason Spezza continues to be a marvel uh, at defying age. It's just his offensive instincts are so good that he's able to produce seemingly consistently, even though he's, you know, by hockey standards, geriatric. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I know we're we're gushing a little bit here, but after the first 
10-ish minutes of game one. After the John Tavares injury, I was not in a good frame of mind. You know, that was a, a harrowing incident, as I've said before. It took, kind of took us out of hockey altogether. And the Leafs lost the game, and they were looking at a big hill to climb. And the three games since have been about all you could have hoped for. They were the better yeah. team every night, and they won every game. This is very close to the best-case scenario for the Leafs. Now, it must be said, one of the things that we talked about on our preview pod was that Montreal was kind of a pretty terrible team for the last six weeks. And, you know, part of the reason we didn't expect that to continue is because they would be getting Brendan Gallagher back, who is, you know, he shouldn't make the difference between, you know, a bottom feeder and a very good playoff team. But he undeniably makes a very big difference for the Habs because he is probably their best 5-on-5 forward. He's not looked like himself. No, and I'm wondering if he's not 100%. He was out with a busted thumb, wasn't he? Uh, Is my recollection of the injury, but... I can look it up. If that's you know, hurting his ability to pounce on rebounds. And he plays a game where he takes a lot of punishment. It was a broken thumb, yes. Uh, yeah, there we go. So, if he's not 100%, that hurts them a lot. At their peak, they have Tatar, Deneau, Gallagher as a line that is capable of going toe-to-toe with anyone. And again, as we've said, Deneau hasn't had the greatest success against Matthews to begin with. But if Gallagher is struggling, the offense on that team, it really becomes pretty questionable. And they do miss Drouin, who is a skilled player, even if he's not that well-rounded. There's something I wanted to mention about Josh Anderson, too, who had a Mm. very strong game one and has been less impressive since. And it is something that we also mentioned in the preview pod, which is that he's an unbelievable force on the rush when he gets two or three steps going he is so hard to stop or even slow down because he's like a runaway freight train and i really do believe that those images say with general managers and fans and commentators of the game because they look at this guy and they think this guy is just a beast of a power forward and it's not illegitimate he's good at that but he doesn't do a whole lot else When he's not rushing, when he doesn't have space to get a few strides with the puck, he becomes a much less impressive player. I don't think it's coincidental that he had two, sorry, he had 17 goals this year and seven assists. That's a pretty lopsided ratio in favor of goal scoring. It's okay, goal scoring is good and he did it at a high rate, but not a well-rounded player. I do wonder if the Habs just lack for players who are really good at every facet of the game. Toffoli is close. He's pretty good at everything. But Austin Matthews is now at a level where he really just does all of the hockey things at a very high level. The Habs don't have anyone close. Yeah. Um, and just to kind of remark on, on one of the points you've made, it has to be kind of scary and disheartening for the Habs where, you know, okay, yeah, we're, we're down 3-1. And also, Austin Matthews hasn't really, hasn't had the success that you would have expected him to have, mm-hmm. right? In terms of actually putting the puck in the net. And there's, you know, two ways to go about it. it when he isn't putting the puck in the net, it's not just luck, right? Because if we accept that he has the ability to elevate his shooting percentage above uh, normal players, we have to accept that he also bears some responsibility for being able to do that. And then it's also not a, a one-way street, right? The, the defense has some ability to impact that too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in whichever measure you want to credit it, um, 
you know, he hasn't had the the goal scoring prowess in this playoff series that we normally expect from him. But I don't think anyone feels that there's something lacking in what he's doing. Like it, it really does feel like a situation where if he just keeps playing the way he's been playing, it's going to work. Right. That's and, yeah. If they were shutting him down, if it was mm-hmm. like, wow, he's not getting shots, he's not getting chances. That's a big concern. We're earning this deficit that he's that he's got under his expected goals. But it's more just like, well, it hasn't gone in for him yet. And you know, Carey Price has something to say about some of it. But yeah, well, and that's the other thing. You know, the the Habs are down three one. Hasn't really been close the last two games in terms of. I mean, I guess sorry, game three was close. It was two one. Mm-hmm. Um, where the Leafs kind of dominated the second and let it get clawed back in the, in the third. Games two and games four were not close. Um, and, it, you know, they've arguably had the better goalie. Actually, they almost certainly have had the better goalie when you consider the workload that Price has to face. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, we talked on the pod that one of the reasons, if, if you bet on Montreal as like a, or if you think Montreal is a favorite, one of the reasons has to be playoff carry Price is a thing. And... Play, we, we were very skeptical of playoff Carey Price. He, he's been very good, so maybe we were wrong on that. His playoff numbers historically you know, have been very good for the past few years. I'm kind of confused at why he would not simply choose to be playoff Carey Price all the time. Uh, it seems kind of selfish of him to, to not do that. But putting that aside, you know, if you're a Habs fan, that has to be kind of demoralizing because you've got one of the things you said you needed in order for this series to be competitive, and it still hasn't been competitive to this point. Right. I mean, if you want the most encouraging thing for the Toronto Maple Leafs, besides, you know, the current state of the series, which is 3-1, I think it would be that the Habs have had some of the components that they would want to have to pull off the upset. So Austin Matthews isn't lighting the score sheet up. Carey Price is playing pretty well. Um, You know, from a cynical Our second-line center got injured. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not saying that that was, you know, I'm not, I don't blame Corey Perry for that or anything like that. I'm just saying that that represents an opportunity for the Habs to beat a better opponent who is short-handed. Even, even beyond that, you know, Nick Felino has right. been hurt. And right, like the, the the marquee deadline acquisition, whatever you may think of it. Right, and so all of those things are already going. It's not that the Leafs can't shit the bed or suddenly have everything go awry on them, but a lot of things are already going right and proving insufficient. And that's encouraging for the Leafs that they are still doing this and discouraging for the Habs. Because if Carey Price has an off night in Game 5 and it looks like this, it's going to be a blowout. If Austin Matthews has one of his supernova games, uh, then again, the Leafs are in a position to put up some margins there. I still think the Habs are better than they looked uh, last night against the Leafs. But I am starting to wonder if, if we really just did overrate them for being a good expected goals team. It's a small sample, but they, they haven't shown the strengths that they were supposed to have other than Carey Price. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah. One of the interesting things um, is, you know, how... Like, what, what happens to Montreal kind of mentally from here? We kind of discount that to some extent. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, it probably doesn't feel great to be in their shoes. And I think it's a very real question of, you know, the, these, guys, these guys know 
the, that they're up against it. I don't expect them to like give up or anything like that. You don't get to the NHL by being you know weak minded. Mm-hmm. But you know, you, I, I I can see this starting to spiral if they get down in a hole early in Game Five. Is is that going to kind of be a death knell? It could definitely hurt them and slow them down. I mean, conversely, if they get a breath of life with an early goal, scrape out a winning game five, come back game six in Montreal, and have some fans in the arena, which they will be allowed to do for the first time, then maybe this season looks different and we're having a very different podcast tonally in a few days. Mm, Yeah. I mean, Um, you know, no matter how a series gets to a game seven, if it gets to a game seven, it's a toss up almost, right? Right. By definition. Right, and so that's all there. Um, the biggest thing that is is striking to me is how stagnant most of the Habs' offense looks. We talked about this beforehand. They're a very meat-and-potatoes, old-fashioned, grind-it-out kind of offensive team. We're going to throw it back to the point. We're going to get a big shot uh, from Shea Weber, ideally, but from really any of several of these guys. We're going to put a crowd in front of the net. Sometimes we'll get a lucky bounce off a skate. Sometimes we'll have to pounce on a rebound. I think the Leafs of years past, and this is where I really do believe Sheldon Keefe has made some difference. The Leafs of years past would have suffered in the face of that. The Leafs now, I think, are on rebounds quicker. And that's one of the first changes I noticed under Sheldon Keefe was that they seem to prioritize that. And I also think that they're a stronger cycle team. So there may be less opportunity for the Habs to, one, feast on rush offense, which is, as we've mentioned, one of the ways that they get offense. And then, two, the Leafs are well-positioned to endure the more static, less imaginative offense. Cole Caulfield has come into the series after being bizarrely scratched for the first couple of games, I guess, to, I don't know, show him for being too young. And he's looked like the most dynamic player on the Habs roster offensively. I really mean that. Like, he's been the most visually impressive, if nothing else, in the last couple of years. They haven't coached it out of him yet. Yeah. <laughs> Give him time. And uh, actually, this is just an aside while we're talking about Caulfield. I find this is true of a lot of players. Other teams say it about Mitch Marner. But it's true of Caulfield, too. Guys who are a little bit smaller but who move like water bugs, who have a lot of lateral agility, you'll hear a lot of fans shouting, somebody just hit him. Somebody just body check him. And that's easier said than done a lot of the time. To land a big hit on somebody, either he's got to be going real fast straight into you and you get in his way, or you have to get a couple of strides at him. If he's very agile and prone to quick shifty changes in direction, like Caulfield is and like Marner is, Uh, They can shift on you, and you can have a hard time building up those couple of steps of momentum that let you land a big hit. And so I have noticed that several times with him. Uh, To give a concrete example of that, yesterday, Game 4, Ben Chirot, early in the first, goes for a hit. I forget who the Leafs puck carrier was. Was it it Marner? Um, It's a Marner-esque sort of thing, but who knows? Yeah, it was... I forget who it was. He went for a... He, you know, went for a hit as a Leaf was exiting the zone, and it led to a two-on-one. Mm. Right? And that, that's what happens if it goes wrong. Right. And so it can be viscerally satisfying to go for the hit. It can impress your coach when it works. But it is not a zero-risk play. And I have to say, guys of Caulfield's size, because he's very small. He's smaller than Marner. Um, 
they make it to this level because they have skills that enable them to endure a contact sport. So I do want to give some credit for that because I think it's fair and sometimes people look past that. Right, like, putting it, put it this way, you're not going to be the first guy who had the idea to hit Cole Caulfield. Yeah, people have probably been trying to do that since he was 12. And he's made it this far, avoiding that a decent percentage of the time. But all of that said, he stands out by contrast. Him and Nick Suzuki, I think, has had some impressive moments. Mm. But you really are seeing not enough skill on the Habs roster. And we always knew that was a weakness for them. Skill, finishing talent, ability to create. But they've created almost nothing uh, the last couple of games. And the natural end result is that you had a shutout for Jack Campbell. And Jack Campbell played quite well. He made some good saves. But that night was easier on him than it should have been, frankly. A better team would have challenged him a hell of a lot more than the Habs did, I think. Yeah, and the other thing, this is another thing we've discussed, and we, we kind of, we wondered if this would be mitigated somewhat in the playoffs, and it hasn't been. Um, the Habs have no buffer because they're so bad at everything besides 5v5 hockey, too. Mm-hmm. Like, even, even when they're at their best. Their power play is on an 0-4 in the series. Uh, the Leafs have, what, three power play goals in the series? <laughs> Which feels miraculous in and of itself. But, yeah, um, I mean, I'd say it hasn't been textbook at all times, but, you know, three power play goals. Since you, they got, you'll take the, it. Yeah, the, yeah the, the power play made game two a blowout, and mm-hmm. it solidified game three, or game four. Yeah, pretty good, right? Right? Like, it, t- it took a 2 nothing lead to effectively 4 nothing with the empty netter. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, a, in terms of, kind of, in 5v5 goals, the Leafs outscored him 2-0. Right. Uh, so, so, yeah, like, it's... Uh, they're, they've been so bad at that, and I've, again, we've, we've made this comment, you know, regular listeners of the pod can tune out to some extent here, because we've said it so often, but, like, it's just so antiquated, their, their power play. I, I, don't, I don't understand how someone, how a bunch of people, a bunch of presumably smart people who run the Habs, who are paid six figures, if not seven figures, to create a good hockey team. How they have failed to look at that power play and just see the obvious low-hanging fruit of, hey, let's stop building around shots from really far away. That's actually something that I wanted to remark on, too. And I know that we've talked about this several times before, but I was looking at power play shot threats. In terms of each team's power play, who takes most of the shot attempts? So this is just the individual rate of shooting 5v4. And I set a 30-minute minimum to weed out people who played one game. What I found was that very few teams that have good power plays have a defenseman shooting the most. The exception is Carolina with Dougie Hamilton. But no teams besides Montreal have their top two shooters by volume as defensemen on the power play. It's Weber and then Petrie. Or Petrie, sorry. That seems like it's structural. Like, it's one thing to just say, okay, Shea Weber was once the best slap shot defenseman in the NHL or close to it. And he had a real case for that title. You see, still, they're both very good shooters for defensemen, but they're just taking inefficient shots. Yeah, it's like, you know, being the best typewriter repairman in town. That strategy does not work that well in the modern NHL. And I think that they're paying the price for it repeatedly. 
Um, yeah, it's just, it's baffling that that is something that they seem to be doing tactically, because that's what I want to emphasize. It's not even just one guy. It's something that seems to permeate their whole structure. Now, this could go the other way. In a short series, like, it's not, totally possible for Shea Weber to score two or three times doing that. Anything can happen. But I think that they genuinely have hurt their chances year in, year out by defaulting to this plan. And it's been happening too long for there to be much excuse. Actually, if you wanted a reason to fire the coach, and they fired Claude Julien, which I'm not sure was a good idea, but one of the marks against him would have been the power play not being that competent. However much responsibility he bore for that, you know, whether or not he, he handed it off to an assistant. But it hasn't been any better or different under Ducharme. Yeah, and it's also like, you could say maybe the Habs um, lack the talent to work their way into better shots. I don't really buy that, mm-hmm. right? Because I think that clever schemes can actually kind of get you a long way to that. You know, looking at some of the teams that are ahead of them in terms of uh, the amount they score on the power play, you know, are, are the Blues a team that scream out high-end skill? Not to me. Mm-hmm. Right? Are the Coyotes? Definitely not. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, they so, have Kessel, but still. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, those teams are, are scoring a lot more than, than the Habs are. I mean, Arizona might not be a good... Um, comparison because I, I'm pretty sure their power play is also just Jakob Chikrin, mm. who's had a super hot uh, scoring year. But, you know, like it's it, it's not impossible for teams without, you know, $40 million in forwards to create good power plays. St. Louis is a better example in that sense because, you know, that they're considered a defense-heavy team, but they actually have a somewhat efficient power play. They, they take shots from the flanks and from, from down low. Mm-hmm. Right, so yeah, I, I don't get what the Habs are are trying to do with that. Right, so there are a lot of issues there. Now you're never as good as you look when you're winning. You're never as bad as you look when you're losing. Mm-hmm. I yes, don't, I mean it's worth yeah. noting the Leafs have like a seventy percent goals for percentage in the series, and you know they probably don't deserve it to be that high. Yeah, they've been the better team. I don't know if they've been obscenely dominant the way that they might have looked at times uh, through certain second periods. But I can certainly see the Habs playing better, getting back in the series, ideally playing with a lead for extended stretches. You know, this team with a 2 nothing lead is still an intimidating proposition. You remarked on this before the series started. You know, they play a lot better from in front. And that's easier for any team, but it's especially easier for the Habs because... They can really just button down and do what they do best, which is turn the game into a slush fest. But it is remarkable how much the skill gap has shown up so far. We all knew it was there, but it's been kind of staggering. So, yeah, it's mostly been a very encouraging couple of games from a Leaf perspective. There are very few things... Uh, to really worry about, you know, other than we cheer for the Toronto Maple Leafs and they're in a playoff series and they have a lead now, and that has historically ended in a certain amount of heartbreak. But uh, I've been I've been encouraged by just how solid and how deep the lineup has looked. Um, and again, maybe I'm too impressed because I've overrated Montreal all this time. I'm 
certainly open to that possibility, but it is good. It is really genuinely admirable to see them come through like this without John Tavares, because it it would have been easy to to really be dealt a, a devastating blow by that injury. Yeah, and you know we're we're certainly not going to look forward and make this like a Jets playoff preview pod because mm-hmm. we're not tempting fate that much. Um, but you know the this it's hard to deny that this does represent a chance a really good chance at least to get to the final four as as we discussed you Mm -hmm. know many times throughout the course of the year and that's not something that can be overlooked and i hope that's not an opportunity that that they turn down yes yes i agree with with that wholeheartedly so yeah you really want to end this in game five you're well positioned to do so you've got home ice um you're rolling you've got the momentum so it's just a matter of getting out there and doing it um there was something that was remarked on online that's maybe worth a bit of discussion. It was from Dave Hodge, um, sportscaster and hockey personality. And he said, you know, this series hasn't really lived up to the billing in terms of the excitement level. He said this has been a bit of a drag. And I think there are a few reasons for that. First of all, I'm enjoying it, I got to tell you. If the Leafs win a series, then it's a good series in my books. But the reason it might not be as appealing to people without my rooting interest, first of all, the Tavares injury cast a bit of a pall over everything. And secondly, the Habs are not an exciting team. Even when they're playing at their best version of themselves, which we haven't really seen, they want to turn this into a game where it looks like everyone is kind of skating through the mud, where it's grinding, where there are a lot of somewhat iffy defensive maneuvers that don't get called where it's very hard for skill to out because they don't have that much skill. And instead they can talk about playoff hockey and toughness and how they were built for the playoffs. The Habs are built for uh, a playoffs that we're not seeing right now. And the result is they look outclassed. You know, I, I, there's someone I follow on Twitter who keeps remarking, well, if the refs go to prison rules hockey, that really benefits the Habs. And certainly it does. But I've been really surprised by how ineffective they've looked. Mm. And as you would expect, Habs fans are, are taking this pretty calmly. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen anyone upset or, or crying or threatening to burn jerseys or property. <laughs> I swear they're the only fan base that is on a level with us. Maybe Vancouver, but... They really are just kind of a mirror image. Um, there's a lot of blaming of the refs, which I think is... I'm sorry, that's total nonsense. And Yeah, that's... I mean, it's pure salt. Yeah, 100%. I'm sorry, that's, that's just rubbish. But also there's an argument of, do we play the kids? And the kids are, well, really Alexander Romanov. Yeah, at this point. Right? I mean, they should have played Caulfield from the start. I don't know they if it makes have. a huge difference. Yeah, and they should have played Kotkaniemi, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's also... Well, it's weird, you know, what does it say about your team that Kanyemi goes from a scratch to on PP1 within two games? It's like, okay, well, you know, something something is wrong here. Someone fucked up at some point. Yeah, that is a we-don't-know-what-we're-doing-and-we're-desperate kind of maneuver. And so, yeah, there are a lot of concerns there. 
the, the big um, complaint that a lot of Habs fans have that I see is, you know, one, they don't think that they have enough good centers. And, uh, yep. But another one is that they they don't feel that they have enough puck-moving defensemen. And mm-hmm. that's something that we talked about beforehand a little bit, which is that they have a lot of guys who are big and intimidating and mean and who will clutch and grab, but who maybe aren't the best at advancing out of the zone, getting plays started with creative passing. Shea Weber has never actually been that great at it. He's just been... In, at, in, at his peak, he was a holy terror in the defensive zone, and he had the deadliest slap shot in the NHL or close to it. But now he's declined. Ben Chirot, very big. Joel Edmondson, big and not a lot else. And then it leaves Jeff Petrie to do a lot of the, the heavy lifting in terms of actual playmaking. And it's yeah, tough. And, yeah, and Brett Kulak and John Merrill aren't really doing anything, uh, aren't doing anything for anyone, really. <laughs> No, the coach doesn't. They're not, they're not difference them. makers, right? It, 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 yeah. It's like us, you know, banking on Zach Bogosian to save us. Yeah. Bogosian's done quite well, and that's actually something we should maybe discuss in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, of you know, Bogosian's I think probably been better than a lot of us thought he would be. But yeah. it's also, you know, and this is actually something Alan mentioned when you know we when we signed him. If you have him in a depth role, you will eventually kind of forget he's there, and it's probably not the optimal. Uh, use of that role but it's not anything that you really seriously need to be concerned about mm-hmm. and the biggest difference there are several but the biggest difference between Bogosian and the many failed defensemen of seasons past is what we're asking him to do we don't need him to play top four minutes right now and I hope we don't have to and as a result he's settled in on a third pair and he can do that quite fine so yeah I, I mean that's I think that the Habs have that issue at forward where there's just not enough skill pushing down. There are so many components that would be part of an intimidating lineup if there were someone else above them. You know, Philip Deneau as a third-line center is a terrifying proposition. Philip Deneau as a second-line center is maybe even, all right. Philip Deneau as a first-line center is starting to get a little bit iffy, I think. And, you know, you, you, do, you don't have someone in that spot who's playing 21, 22, 23 minutes successfully, who's putting up big to- totals. Um, you know, I know we've talked about how the no line can win its minutes uh, at its best, but I think they've suffered from the inability to create a lot there. That's what I keep coming down to up and down this roster is there aren't enough guys who can create plays shots for themselves or others that are high danger. And that's an issue that permeates all of them. They missed Duran for it, but it's a, it predates his, his absence, and it's really been what's held the Habs back. Um, yeah, do we have uh, any other thoughts about the Habs or the Leafs? I don't have any. I'm, sa- I'm, save- I'm saving you know our segment of just reading Habs Reddit titles um, <laughs> for... You know, if and when we win the series. Yes. Again, I, it's a yeah, horror not, movie. They're not dead till they're dead. Yeah, I'm, I'm not putting the, the pod save America, <laughs> the, uh, what, what they did, you know, November 3rd, 2016. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's going down in infamy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, look, if, if you're a Leafs fan, it, you can't be anything other than thrilled. And, um, you know, in, 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 a, in a very kind of soft and gushy way, you can't help but be proud of this team, 
right? right. And that's kind of the best case scenario for, for any hockey team, right? It, it's, it, it is kind of a parasocial relationship, right? Because, you know, William Nylander doesn't think at all about back to excited. Probably. Well, we don't know that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but no, right, but he probably like, doesn't. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing to see, you know, the the players and the the coaches and the organization that we've invested time in and effort in and kind of followed for such a long time to see this success that we've known that they can have and it's just on them to close it out now. Right. Yeah, I mean, the truth is is that the Leafs have had a lot of unpleasant surprises in the last few seasons. Uh, some heartbreaking losses to the Boston Bruins and a really frustrating one to the Columbus Blue Jackets. That's sort of a legacy of disappointment. And there was always a subtext of, are they just not able to deliver when it counts? Or, you know, people searching for other explanations, which did they just get goalied? Were they unlucky? Whatever else. It's not that often where we've had a team face real adversity which they did, don't let anyone tell you otherwise, in Game 1, and see them push back and surge uh, the way that they have been doing. Let's hope it continues and they can put their first series win on the board in 17 yeah. years. Yeah, and actually I do have one mm-hmm. more thought or set of thoughts. There's no wrong way to win a series. Yeah. Um, however you do it works, more or less. Um, but Cal Dubas has to be incredibly happy you know, from a personal vindication standpoint mm-hmm. of how this series has played out. Right. You know, the guy he made a big bet on and was much derided in the media and William Nander has as many goals as the, as the Habs do, right? The, the reclamation project of Alex Galchenyuk, you know, haunts his former team with a three-point night. Jack Campbell, who we acquired almost as a throw-in in, you know, what was probably originally termed the Kyle Clifford deal. Mm-hmm. Has, has been, you know, an absolute stalwart. I mean, we've, we've barely mentioned Jack Campbell, and that's the biggest compliment you can ever really pay a goalie. Yeah, the other thing is he's been very, very good, very quiet in, in the net. And part of that is the Leafs have genuinely played both defensively. Imagine that. But also, he's just been very solid. He seems to, and goaltending analysis is way out of my depth, so I'm going to stick to one comment. But he seems to be tracking the puck really well in that he stays with it pretty much the whole way. Like I keep seeing play after play where he knows where it is and he gets in front of it. Yeah. You, you know, and he, he doesn't even look like he's really scrambling to an aggressive extent. So, yeah. I mean, the only time I really remember him really swimming was the, the first goal against in game two. Yeah. And that was after a pretty extended barrage from the Habs. So I'll cut yeah. him some slack on that one. But yeah, I mean, Kyle Dubas, his fingerprints are all over this roster at this I point. I hadn't even mentioned uh, Spezza and Simmons. Right, right. Spezza especially stands out as a great acquisition. And, you know, it's partly because he was a, a hometown team. But he's been terrific. You know, you've, you've seen a lot of decisions that were maybe not slam dunks at the time come through for, for Kyle Dubas so far in this series. And let's hope it continues. Because if so, this is an actual deep team. Mm. all right Great. that was awesome. maybe the most optimistic podcast we've ever had i know I, it feels I'm, weird doesn't it i'm really worried now actually i've kind of worn myself out and now i'm like oh the universe is setting us up yeah <laughs> I, I mean look it, it would it would be very leafy but you know this is a point katya makes like you know it, it at some point it, it stops being cute to to play the underdog like we are the favorites here we have the burden of pressure yeah and we need to accept that. And, I mean, the team has done a good job of accepting that. And, um, 
they're in an awesome spot from here. Just need to get one more win. Yeah, close it out, and uh, we can at least notch one for the Habs. So, mm-hmm. good. Awesome. So thank you to everyone for listening. You can catch all of mine and Foldman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.